if as I answer these questions, um, it stimulates anything for you, any further questions or comments, then please feel free to um, just speak up. And there's not a whole lot, so if I get through them, maybe we can just have fresh questions after that. Hi. Is it fine in the Vipassana tradition of walking meditation to be aware of breath, as they do in Zen, instead of on the feelings in the legs and feet? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, You can coordinate the breathing with the movements of the legs, if you'd like, and it can be quite um, (coughs) absorbing to do so. You wouldn't want to control the breath in any way, but rather to, um, to move the legs in coordination with the breath or to move the feet in coordination with the breath. So you're not trying to um, do anything special to the breath at all if you choose to, to work in this way. You would just let the breath be as usual, pay attention to it, and bring the feet into the experience, bring the feet into it. Uh, so you're moving in coordination with the rhythm of the breath without changing the rhythm in any way. And it can really, for some people, be more absorbing um, than just to be with the feet on your own. Some people just take to being with the feet and that's enough. Um, If the breath is a strong object for you and it's one that you feel easily absorbed into, then to use it in the walking is is absolutely fine. And it's, it's really a matter of preference which one is more interesting or more absorbing for you. So you can kind of use this as another um, trick or another thing to experiment with in practice uh, next time you do the walking or at some point to see if bringing the breath into the experience does enhance it or whether it's just complicated, just complicate something that was already simple, just being with the feet. Um, the idea is in the walking to make it as simple as possible and to not complicate it in any way. So um, you'll have to find that out for yourself. As one moves more into the walking, for those of you who are new to it, um, one does get a bit more fluid and able to experiment with different ways of walking, of doing the walking. And I'm not speaking about exaggerating anything and learning how to walk backwards or, you know, (laughs) like an elephant or anything like that. But um, to rather bring the attention to different places in the body. There's a whole body awareness that, that is wonderful to do. I'm sure some of you are already doing it. Not focusing on the feet specifically, but being with the body as a whole and just walking, just the freedom of walking, um, aware of the entire body walking, not confining it in any way to the feet or to the breath or to any particular part, but just taking off and walking with the full body 
in the mind. And it can be very accelerating to, to um, do this kind of walking. So you might want to try that too. It's um, usually done with the very fast walking rather than with the very slow walking. But you, know, you can try it whichever way you want. But with the fast walking, it's very neat because you can just take off and just be focused on the body, the entire body as a whole. You, you may not, not um, be actually focused on the entire body, but it's wherever you are in the body that you would be with. Also, the walking is sometimes used to um, work with wisdom, to just walk in whatever way you're walking and to contemplate something or another. You know, to contemplate death or to contemplate impermanence or um, some kind of wisdom subject. Sometimes the walking is used in this way also. It's another way of using it. On a retreat such as this, it's generally um, really good to use it um, to work with the sitting and then with the walking to continue with the practice of just being with one object. So being with um, just the feet or linking the feet with the breath and being with both in that way rather than so much using it for wisdom or using it to investigate. But as practice moves along and as it becomes more fluid, there's a lot of different ways to um, use all of these things that we're learning, all of these different techniques and ways of working with mindfulness. So the answer is yes. Is there a preferred object of concentration for the samadhi practice? I know that the Burmese think that the abdomen should only be observed, but what do the Thai teachers say? Well, I don't think there's any such thing as Thai teachers in general because um, everyone has their own opinion about these things. And um, there are a lot of different preferences, a lot of different places that um, different teachers think is the best place to be. Some people really think it's the nose. Some people definitely know it's the abdomen. Other people think it's um, the chest, actually the heart, that everything eventually rises to the heart. Or if you're at the nose, it goes down to the heart eventually. If you're at the abdomen, it goes up to the heart eventually. Um, and so then focusing on the heart is the best place to be, the most um, preferable place to be. Some people think that you should just let the breath be wherever it is and follow it and not have preferences about where it should be in the body. Um, some people think just being aware of, of the breath um, going down and then going up. In other words, following the course of the breath, following it down and then following it up is the best place to be. And you'll find that um, everyone can back it up with a lot of different um, scripture references and uh, you know, uh, facts from here and facts from there. Um, it doesn't seem that the Buddha actually 
said that the breath should be followed in any one particular place at all. It just seems to have been left out. That it, going back to the um, original teachings of the Buddha, the, the um, sutras, there doesn't seem to be any one place that's mentioned. Just be with the breath. Follow the breath. And so, um, perhaps in general, a more Thai style, just to refer back to this Thai teacher thing, um, um, perhaps a more um, general view that Thai teachers may have would be to find it where you can follow it best in yourself. Um, where is it most comfortable for you to be with the breath? Um, where is it most enjoyable? Where is it easiest? Where, where is it most predominant? Um, where do you want to be? Where is the heart drawn to be? And it seems that because we have different bodies and we have different minds and different kinds of conditioning and tendencies, that perhaps it's different for everybody. That perhaps there isn't, is no one place to be and that each of us has to find out where it's best. And it might be any number of these, these um, different places that I just mentioned, nose or abdomen or heart or full body, um, uh, going with it as it goes down and as it goes up, following it. Um, ba- a, a more a basic Thai approach would be to um, not be as concerned about the technique and to be more concerned about what happens. Is the mind opening up? Is the mind developing and getting a little quieter? Because being with the breath where you want to be with it, rather than where somebody has told you to be with it, makes it more likely that you're going to be with it more, that you're going to be, um, in a natural way, more concentrated. It's going to be easier So there's not going to be this kind of forcing and trying to be with it in a place that is uncomfortable, but rather just where um, you want to be and where it's enjoyable. And of course, in that, it's a lot more absorbing. The mind just naturally gets more absorbed into it. So I wouldn't get caught in it. Uh, sometimes it seems like it's a lot of much ado about nothing in terms of where to be with it. And um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get caught in the different arguments <coughs> in one way or another, um, but rather to find out where it's best for you and to work with that one place. It is generally helpful if you don't move around too much. Um, if you've decided that you're going to be with the nose, to stay with the nose is a really good idea. Or if you've decided to be with the abdomen, to be with the abdomen is a really good idea. And not to continually change, I should be here, I should be there, that kind of thing. Um, it can just breed a whole lot of confusion, which is what we come to practice with in the beginning anyhow. So we don't want to encourage confusion in the mind. One, this is a long one. 
what would a Buddhist think or do about world starvation, oppression, environmental disaster, etc.? Two. <laughs> I'm glad it's written down. I would never remember. <laughs> Why do so very few yogis smile, like joggers, in parentheses? This, this is not torture, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's probably a mistake at the end. It's maybe it should be, is it? Three, great retreat. Okay, so what would a Buddhist think or do about world starvation, oppression, environmental disaster? So things that are happening that are um, quite terrible in this world, suffering in this world. In general, it is a view that these kinds of things, these kinds of um, sufferings in the world are fueled by our minds. The reason for these things, yeah, think, I'll, I'll work on the think part too, first. Um, the reason for these things being that there is the tendency for greed in the mind, there is the tendency for aversion in the mind, and there is the tendency for delusion in the mind. So, here we have it, world starvation, the tendency for greed, are not being able to share with one another, are not being content with what we have, and trying to get more all the time, and um, unwillingness to share with one another as people. Oppression, of course, coming from arrogance and aversion and anger, and environmental disaster seemingly coming from delusion, from um, not seeing clearly that the world needs to be taken care of just the way our bodies do and just the way our minds do. So not, not seeing this fact in a clear way. So it coming from each one of us would really be the view that as long as there is are these kalesis tendencies towards greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind, which we've talked about the kalesis before, as long as there are these kalesis present in the mind, there is um, the actuality of these things in the world. And it seems to make tons of sense that if it's in our minds, that it's going to be manifested in some way in the world. In terms of do, about these things, I think that um, there is no one answer and that each one of us has to find out what we want to do and that the natural reaction as our hearts open and as our minds are developed and as we look around us more and more and as we look inside of us more and more, there is that natural response of compassion that occurs naturally we want to do something. You know, we see these things and we want to act in some way and alleviate suffering in some way or another. I think it's very, very personal how the ways that one finds to do this, to do these things, to alleviate suffering. 
and you know that it just might be very very different for each one of us um, and sometimes there's the tendency in in um, meditating I think to get very close down and um, inside of oneself and not so much seeing the problems in the world and um, meditation seems to be um, working with everything working with the internal in terms of the cleansing and the purification of these tendencies as well as the alleviation of suffering so I don't think that there's a form or there's any one form that works for all of us or, or some of us but that it's a real question I think it's it's one of those questions that that um, we carry with us that has to be dealt with in some way or another Why do so very few yogis smile? <laughs> well, I guess it depends on the yogis that you know. Um, I know a lot of yogis that do smile. Uh, and it's not supposed to be torture, no. I'm not exactly sure what this is referring to. Um, Larry's made this observation that people that are involved in Hindu practices and practices where you're supposed to get very happy and, and joyful, they, all the, the pictures of the people, everybody's beaming and smiling, you know, all the pictures. And in, um, in pictures of um, Theravadan monks or people doing this practice, everybody's very straight-faced. <laughs> Equanimity is the way to go. So the face is reflecting that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> hmm. And perhaps at times, I don't know if this question is referring to yogis here, um, perhaps at times it gets a bit, people get a bit too grim about everything. Um, I'm sure that happens, that there's a real heaviness to um, one's experience. And also, um, that being true, but also this being a place where one can drop into whatever is there. You know, perhaps the, the face um, sometimes is in an expression to gain approval from other people or want something or you know, be asking for something and so smiling even though you don't feel like it you know, so, that, so that you'll get liked or so that we'll get what we want or um, some expression of fear or something like that. And perhaps in this environment and through meditation the face drops some. I'm not saying that no smiling or anything like that, but perhaps the face relaxes some, and that's the other side of it going in the direction of grimness. The other side is that perhaps the face just relaxes a little bit. Okay, we have a book here. How does one remain detached from feelings and simultaneously warm, intimate, and very much in touch with them? Too much one way and one may become callous and indifferent, and too much in the other one may drown in the emotional world, losing equanimity. Something that came to me during one of my more profound jhanic trances 
Oops, it was nothing to do with the question. <laughs> okay, and more. So we'll just work with the, the first one up here. Okay, so how does one remain detached from feelings? This is a, a very, really important question. Um, and it has to do, I think, with misuse of practice rather than using pa- practice correctly. And perhaps a better word that we could use than detached from feelings <coughs> might be um, non-attached. In other words, detachment implies some kind of a distance, some kind of a um, coming back and not knowing what one's feelings are, um, a dryness in that. And non-attached meaning that you're observing them and you're in them, but you're not lost in them or wallowing around in them. A story was told a, um, a few days ago about a Korean monk that Larry had known. Um, I don't know whether you remember the story or not, but, but a nun in the monastery where this Korean monk was had died. And the um, Korean monk was crying quite a bit. Larry had had a lot of respect and reverence for this monk, so he um, was wondering why he was crying. If we're supposed to be attentive to feelings, um, why was this, this person crying, and, and understood death, why was this person crying when his, his, this friend had died? And so he went over to the Korean monk and asked him, and the monk said that, you know, kind of laughed at him, and he said that this person was a good friend of mine, and so I'm fully grieving, and then I'm going to just let it go. I'm going to fully grieve because this was a good friend, and then just let it go, fully let it go. So that made a whole lot of sense. And then at another point, um, Larry talked to someone named Ajahn Suwat, a teacher of ours, and told him this story and asked him what he thought of it. And Ajahn Suwat said that, um, yes, this is fine, and perhaps he didn't have deep enough understanding. So perhaps Ajahn Suwat had a re- has a really deep understanding. And if we believe that, and this person actually is a very believable person, um, perhaps there has been that understanding of death as being just changing from one element into another. And if we don't understand that, if we don't see that, then to pretend to believe that and to react in that way to different situations doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Seems to be a whole lot of pretense involved in that. And um, very much this practice is about being honest being relentlessly honest, really, and um, impeccably honest with whatever it is that's going on inside of us, which may be grief, which may be sadness in reaction to certain things, which may be anger, and which may be um, a whole lot of different feelings that are, that are difficult. So to pretend that we feel any way that we don't um, does make us calloused. Besides being a whole lot of pretense 
of there being a whole lot of pretense in there, it is a very calloused kind of thing. It doesn't make sense. It's not honoring where we are now. Perhaps with Ajahn Suwat's answer, we can use it as inspiration, and it can be some kind of um, possibility that we can hold in the mind in terms of seeing death in a radically different way than we now see it. But to pretend to feel that way, in other words, if we were in the position of the Zen monk to not cry, doesn't, doesn't seem um, to be the practice. Since what we're working with in practice is being honest with whatever arises in the mind and in the body. Very clearly aware of what is going on in the mind and in the body. Practice is also very much about connection, connecting to whatever is occurring. So rather than moving away, it has to do with getting closer, becoming intimate with our feelings. And the reason for this is that we can see what is going on much more clearly when we're up close. If we're way, way back, we can't see anything. We don't know what they are. It's like a a danger or a stranger. But to come in contact with our feelings, whatever they may be, um, to be connected, to rub up against them, means that um, we can really find out what feeling is. We can come into feeling and have a chance of finding out what feeling is, what feelings are, what feeling, feeling is to us in our life how it moves, how it works. So it seems to me that moving away from them because we're afraid is just a trap, and it's really not practice. Um, It also perhaps has to do with individual tendencies. Some of us are really used to our feelings. We're very feeling human beings, and we're very connected with our emotions, and um, we tend to wallow in them. We tend to get very indulged in them, and um, we know them well. They've been a big part of our reality. And in that case, I think that that really needs to be watched um, to to bring a careful mindfulness to whatever feeling is occurring. In the other way, if um, if we know that there's repression happening, if we know that we have the tendency of pushing away whatever it is that comes up, feelings, then perhaps we have to move a bit in the other direction of being open and just experimenting, seeing what's going on, checking out what's going on. Mindfulness is always the balancer, though. Whenever there's anything to be mindful of whatever it is, seems to be the saving grace and the balancer. Also, there's this difference between um, equanimity and indifference. Equanimity is something that we're trying to develop. Equanimity has to do with balance and um, whatever it is coming up in the mind, being able to float with it and be with it and open to it. And the, um, it's called the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. And it's, they're really, really close together, so sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes we are trying to, to have equanimity to develop in this, and it goes over the edge, 
and there just is this indifference of not really caring about whatever it is that's happening. There's a line in a um, T.S. Eliot poem, which is, Lord, teach me how to care and not to care. And I think this describes it really well, learning how to hold, how to care, how to respect each moment of life, how to respect those around us, how to respect ourselves, that reverence, and also at the same time, how to be with it in a way that's appropriate, um, without excessive clinging, without just wallowing around in it, whatever it is. I always thought it was hard to embrace an Eastern philosophy or religion if you were not brought up in it. I always thought it became a veneer. What are your thoughts and feelings about this? Well, I don't think you have to think of of, um, Vipassana as anything. I don't think you have to think about it as an Eastern philosophy in particular. And that perhaps we get trapped when we think of it as being Buddhism or Vipassana or Samadhi or whatever these words are that we talk about. Um, Because really the practice is about seeing yourself. The practice is about going inside of yourself and seeing exactly what is going on. So rather than it being any kind of a veneer, um, which is exactly the opposite direction that we're going on, it's it's, um, could be better thought of as just the path of self-knowledge and the, self, the self-knowledge not having anything to do with any kind of isms, um, not to do with Buddhism and not to do with this practice that we call Vipassana or anything like that, but just being honest with one's own situation and looking inside in a, a deeper and deeper way to see what this seeming dilemma of being a human being is all about. So I don't think that um, one has to come to this practice in that way, of it being in any way something that separates us, that being a veneer, Um, but rather just what is this experience? And this is what practice leads us into, is what exactly is going on? What is the experience? How about something maybe on how to not use practice as yet another means of um, self-torture? <laughs> Perfectionistic. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, what we're talking about, of course, is uh, right effort here and how we um, really need to learn to do that because we do use anything at our disposal to torture ourselves. Whatever it is, because we have that conditioning, we are just as apt to use practice as anything else as a weapon against ourselves, as a weapon to um, just hurt ourselves more. A light touch, 
And a soft touch, I think, is really essential in practice. Um, What we're doing is we're opening up to all parts of ourselves. And so we bring awareness to our bodies and to our minds. And what occurs? What do we see? Well, we see some very nice things, some very sweet things that we didn't really know about. And we also see a lot of anger and we see a lot of condemnation for ourselves and for other people. And we see a lot of wants and needs. And we see that the mind doesn't do what we want it to do. Very, very, most of the time it doesn't do what we want it to do. And so because we're opening up in this way and asking to see all these different energies, um, sometimes what we do in practice is Right when we see it, we bop ourselves over the head you know, with the steel kind of pole. So now I see that I'm an angry person. I didn't know that before. I practiced as much. And so we, we hit ourselves over the head. And so we can see in this that, that it's a misuse of the practice because um, we're wanting to see these different energies so that we can let them go, so that we can release them, so that we can just relate to them in a different way so that they're not affecting us in the same way, in the same negative way. And so that, ah, here it is, it's like a visitor. Here it is, we, uh, we see it and then we let it go. We allow it to be there as long as it wants. Sometimes maybe a very short time, sometimes maybe a very, very long time. But in any case, it just is there and then it's released. Um, in practice, when it, comes, when it becomes a device for self-torture, which we all do at times, it's not just one of us, it's, it's many of us. Uh, because, pra- because effort really has to do with the development of practice. We don't learn how to use effort correctly um, until we practice for a while. Because the conditioning is towards self-condemnation, that's what we're going to use on ourselves in practice too. So the self-condemnation itself needs to be looked at so that it turns from a torturing device to something that is loving, which is why we practice, is to access the love within. So um, perhaps it's one way to work with it is just very clearly to see the self-condemnation, the heaviness of the self-condemnation, the heaviness of the self-judgment, and to bring awareness to that aspect of ourselves. Not that being other than practice, but that being exactly practice. Because it's happening in the moment, it's happening within us. So a very clear acknowledgement, each time there is judgment, each time there's self-condemnation, is our practice. It may not feel great. I mean, it doesn't feel good to feel judgment and to feel condemnation. And we can have some faith and some trust that to see it, to be mindful of it, allows for the fading away. We don't have to push it away. We don't have to pretend it's not there. We don't have to make it go away. All we have to do is be very carefully mindful, and it does begin this process of fading. (coughs) It really is an art. Right effort really is an art. It's, It's quite delicate, and... Um, We seem to, in the beginning of practice, we hear certain things. We hear stay in the present. We we hear, um, you know, bring your mind back gently, these kinds of things. And meanwhile, we're yanking our mind back, 
you know, for dear, for dear life. And if we get on the breath for a second, it's, it's kind of okay. And then the mind goes off and we're yanking it back again. It's a very breathless kind of, of process that we get into. So more and more bringing um, a real gentleness to ourselves and to the practice. We don't have to push. We don't have to strive. We don't have to force anything to happen. Um, because it's something that happens on its own. It has nothing to do with us, really. <coughs> it's really getting out of the way of something that naturally has a natural life of its own. So the, more we, the less we interfere, the, the easier we can just allow it all to happen on its own. Could you talk about the walking practice? Does it relate more to the samadhi practice or the vipassana? Is it necessary in one's daily practice? It depends on how you use it. Um, Because what I was saying before in terms of using it um, as a wisdom practice, that contemplation of something or another that's very much a a Vipassana practice. Um, And, you know, it's really not such a great idea to make such firm distinctions between it being this or that, because when we're working with absorption and calmness and quieting the mind down, there's always wisdom involved in it. It may not be specifically this or that, but there's always got to be wisdom involved in it. And if there isn't, then there's a big gap, and we have to correct that in some way. We're always seeing something or another about ourselves. So to make that clear of a distinction is, is really um, false. It's really artificial. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's all one. It's all working together. And in terms of it being necessary in one's daily practice, I think that if you're drawn to it, it's a great idea to do it. I don't know about necessary, you know, that, that's personal preference, but I think if you're drawn to it, um, then it's a really, really helpful practice. And the way you can use it in your, in your daily life um, is that we tend to walk a lot, whatever. We tend to walk around town and in our houses and, and here and there, and to make every time that we need to walk a walking meditation, that would be a great use of the walking practice. That would be just a really full and wonderful use of the walking. So yes, it is necessary in that kind of a way, because we have to walk anyhow. In terms of doing it in a formal way, if you're taking to it, if you're interested in it, it can be really a fine um, way to complement the sitting, to work with the sitting too. What about breathing while walking at work in social situations? (laughs) Well, <laughs> I would say if you're in social situations, if you're talking to somebody and you're absorbed in your in the breath at your nose, then um, and only that, then it's problematic. Um, and you can bring the breath into whatever it is that you're doing, and that's that's really a very valid and good way to work. There's a sutra that the Buddha. Um, taught called the Anapanasati Sutra, and which means mindfulness of the breath, and in it is discussed 
um, the practice of being with the breath in whatever it is that you're doing, in all moments of life, in all practices. So, um, in the beginning, it can it can be a little tricky um, because one could can feel a little bit too withdrawn back into the breath and not present with what with what is happening, but to somehow bring the breath into your experience can be very, very helpful. You know, for instance, driving, aware of driving and bringing the <coughs> breath into the driving um, can be useful. It's a different kind of practice than we've been talking about here, but it, it, um, it can be very, very helpful. Does this lend itself to the Germanic temperament, the Hungarian, the American? (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) I guess it depends on your temperament. You know, I don't don't think it's so um, generalized. And maybe some Americans love it and maybe some Americans don't. Um, It is important to know that if you've had a really hard time and s- some of these things aren't making any sense to you, um, that there are a lot of other practices to do, that this isn't the only practice, and that it really has to resonate with one. It doesn't mean that just because you've had a hard time that it's not your practice, because um, you can struggle along for years on a lot of faith and real knowing that you're home, even if your mind is not behaving or your heart is not behaving, you can really feel a sense of home. And um, that can be a lot to go on. It can, you, it, it can take you very, very far. But this, this feeling of it resonating with one, I think, is really important. That it resonate mentally, that the ideas make some sense. They don't have to make total sense. Some of them don't seem to make a whole lot of sense in the beginning, often. Um, but for them to make some sense to one, and then, other than that, some kind of a gut sense, some kind of a heart sense that, um, that one is home in some way. And then you can just take it as far as you want from that sense. In other words, you can go through very difficult places and go through very wonderful places and then go through very difficult places. And there's something sustaining. There's some kind of faith sustaining the whole process. Okay, so why don't we just take a moment and sit together?
when the bell rings, aware of the sound, aware of the body, posture of the body, aware as the body moves from the sitting posture to the standing. Staying inside, staying mindful in moving to the place where you're going to walk. Very carefully mindful during the walking so that there's a continuity of attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.